everyone and welcome to the 63rd edition of df Direct weekly it's our weekly show where inevitably we talk about the latest gaming and technology news if there is gaming and technology news <laughs> oh, it's been a bit it's been a bit difficult recently but um, joining me this week uh, with a fair few discussion points to go over here john linneman rich how's it going absolutely fantastic all right same here i'm ready to talk about some good and bad things today <laughs> and of course alex batalia hey there rich i'm a little under the weather it's not covid but a little cold so if i'm a little plowing through it i'm powering through it i've got water okay that's okay. what i like to hear <laughs> okay let's talk about the first discussion point a curious news story some presentation from chinese display manufacturer tcl they came out with a remarkable um presentation revealing apparently that uh, the gen 9.5 consoles playstation 5 pro and a new xbox series are coming uh some point during 2020 Three to 2024 and um we're looking at uh, 4k 60 to 120 rendering Law. and and uh 8k <laughs> 60 to 120 <laughs> output i mean it's kind of fantasy stuff but fascinating mm. nonetheless uh, they're speculating that the power of the consoles will be equivalent to the rx 7700 xt which isn't out yet is widely considered to be broadly equivalent to today's 6900 XT. Um, where do we begin with this one? Uh, I'm going to go to you first, Alex. Um, first of all, do we need consoles in new consoles in 2023, 2024? Do you think this is feasible? And what about that power prediction? Uh, I, I'm going to say I don't think we need them because there still is not a large enough install base for the currently released PlayStation 5, Xbox Series X, and Xbox Series S. Um, supply constraints throughout the pandemic threw off the uh, dissemination of these consoles so they don't have a wider base. They, they've been selling really well. Um, but that doesn't mean they couldn't have a wider install base, which is what I think we need before we get into the pro console territory. Um, whether we need one at all in terms of technological reasons, it would be nice to have better ray tracing performance and it would be nice to have machine learning uh, uh, acceleration through dedicated cores, not just accelerated instructions. Uh, but that's kind of, at the moment, pipe dream kind of stuff. There is no um, evidence that AMD has that tech at all installed for their next series of chips. We don't know exactly what they are. Uh, we have to have more info about that. So I'm gonna say no, uh, we don't have the possibility for that anyway right now. And I think uh, the power stuff that they're putting on there is absolute nonsense. Uh, not the 6900 XT because it's using an RX 6700 whatever chip, uh, but they also uh, say that the Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5 are similar to the RX 6700 XT, which I don't think is very reasonable. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's not that far away uh, with like infinity cash i mean it's 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 infinity cash is like one of those confounding factors for us at all comparing rdna 2 on pc to console because it it apparently has such an intense uh, effect on performance at like the 1080p to 1440p range um uh that's the whole reason why amd did it so i i'm i just think they just threw a lot of these numbers on there much like the uh, 8K 6120 output. Is there even an, uh, a standard that can do 8K 120? No. No. So like, <laughs> it's what, it's like what? It's like this just all seems like a lot of BS to me. It They've seems... also outed HDMI 3.0. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably on that list of DLSS uh, 3.0, just as realistic. Yeah. 
Um, so, John, uh, you were with me at Microsoft in 2020, where we sat down with the chief architect of the Xbox Series consoles, who basically said that it's extremely difficult to um, get cost reductions on the current gen consoles. And by extension, it kind of suggests that uh, a pro console isn't really viable anytime soon. Um, first of all, what do you make of this? Do you think it is actually viable? And secondly, do we actually need it? Does the, does the consumer need a more powerful console in this particular console generation? Well, I would start with, at least in my opinion, I feel like TCL wouldn't actually have any real visibility on the plans that Microsoft and Sony are cooking up, right? Like they're a TV manufacturer. They know some things for sure, but I really don't think they would know much about this that we wouldn't already know. And I think what what we learned at Microsoft back then is probably going to hold true based on what we know about the current state of silicon and what these companies are producing. Uh, I think the PS4 Pro slash One X kind of worked for two reasons, because one, there was the rise of 4K displays, which were becoming popular. That's not happening with 8K displays, I think. Like they're, they exist, but they're not popular and it's not really what people want or need there's other things that we should be focusing on uh and secondly at least especially from the microsoft perspective uh they knew the original xbox one was largely underpowered and not well received it was the first time xbox came out with a console that was uh below par in terms of capabilities and that's not okay for the xbox brand hence xbox one x was designed to essentially solve that get them back on top and i think it worked in that sense so that's probably why we saw those machines. But this, this time around, between the, the smaller install base, uh, I mean, I guess the install base is actually all right, but there is a chip shortage. People want to purchase these consoles. They can't do it right now, uh, by and large. And I just don't think it's going to make sense to ask people for another 500 bucks within the next couple years necessarily without some kind of major purpose. And I think just like, well, here's some more frames isn't a good enough feature, right? Like when they say like 4K 120 and stuff, we can already do that on the machines if within the constraints of how the game is designed, right? Like just throwing around frame rate numbers never really makes a lot of sense to me because it's always gonna vary based on what developers wanna target. So yeah, this, this doesn't feel like a compelling case to me. Well, you know, I've got a video in production, which may or may, may not probably not be ready by the time this goes out. But the, the bottom line is this. I agree with you, John, that there was a case for the pro consoles last gen uh, because 4K uh, displays were coming. And secondly, if you look back to the launch of the machines in the original machines in 2013, they were actually kind of conservative designs and underpowered. Um, you know, it's like a Radeon 7850 equivalent in a PS4 and then, you know, something even worse than that in the Xbox One. And this time around, for this generation, we've come out with GPUs that are competing in terms of rasterization with like uh, 2080, which isn't, you know, a cheapo GPU. It's actually quite, you know, top middle end. You know, this is, this is a really good GPU that's in the current generation console. So first of all, the question is, can you scale beyond that in a cost efficient manner? And the answer is probably not based on the fact that cost per transistor is static. And I suspect actually bearing in mind the amount of money that we're hearing uh, NVIDIA, AMD are having to splash out for wafers at the 
new processed nodes, cost per transistor may well be going up, which means that the concept of making a mainstream console isn't actually, um, uh, it's, it's extremely challenging, let's put it that way. So, you know, I'd say enjoy the consoles that you've got in the here and now would be my, my message. And I think there's a lot of legs in this generation. The other point I've made is that we're still in cross-gen hell, right? I mean, we've still not seen a game that matches uh, in terms of technological ambition what the Matrix uh, Awakens demo is doing. We're so early in this generation that I don't think we've touched the sides of the GPUs yet. Development time for games these days is so much longer than it used to be, right? It just takes so many years for the generation to so-called start. Like by this point in like the PlayStation 2, Xbox era, there was already a ton of big first party releases on the market and they were already working on sequels by now. But here, most of these studios haven't even produced one game and they're usually cross-gen right now. And the other thing, of course, the, the big question, which, you know, in the digital foundry bubble, we want highest performance, best image quality, consistent frame rates, and yet Switch is going to outperform PlayStation 4 in terms of, um, uh, you know, sold in consoles. And, you know, although we've got reservations about some aspects of the hardware, Xbox Series S has actually been a big success, sold almost as much, possibly even more than Xbox Series X. Um, the question that um, I think the industry generally has to ask is, is there an appetite within the consumer uh, audience, the mainstream consumer audience, for more power, right? That's the big question. And, you know, when you look at Switch, when you look at Series S, it's 50-50, right? I mean, I don't know. I think all of these factors together mean that we're looking at least at 2024, at least, maybe even longer than that. And really, with this cost per transistor issue, which nobody seems to be um, thinking about, the question is, what can you do that is more efficient with the silicon budgets that we've got at the moment? And I guess it will be stuff like uh, machine learning. Um, it will be uh, more efficient architectures. I think I'm, we're going to have to take a really close look at RDNA 3 to get an idea of the kind of um, momentum and roadmap wait, wait, that wait, AMD Rich, actually has. Isn't RDNA 3 already in the PlayStation 5? <laughs> I heard some... <laughs> <laughs> I read that on Twitter. It must be true. It must be true. Uh, in, insider sources. Mm. Close it's those, it's to those Sony. cash scrubbers, bro. It's those cash scrubbers. Mm. Cash scrubbers, that's it. Hashtag cash scrubbers. Um, we are forgetting about the second GPU built into the power supply. <laughs> oh, right. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that could be activated at any moment, <laughs> doubling console performance. <laughs> that could actually be the uh, Gen 9.5 difference here. It's that could be what's in the consoles. Pro console. Yeah. Yeah. An enhanced power supply with <laughs> a second GPU. It's the future. It's like the size of the PS5. It's just next to the PS5. What if they made another stand for the PS5 that was actually like another PS5 and you just daisy chain it and then it's like the, you know, then the PS5 yeah, is as tall as a small child. It's like... What it, what, you know, what's obviously uh, the need here, we, what we obviously need is a dock for the PlayStation 5. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. so just increases performance or maybe an, maybe an up arrow on it so people can actually put it the right way up the first time around that, that'd be helpful. the other thing you know well you know it's got a usb c port on the front maybe uh an egpu mm. external Ooh. gpu that would work 
<laughs> That's just total nonsense. But you can see kind of what we think about this. Um, Mid-gen consoles, I do think there's possibly, uh, well, I think we will see them, um, possibly slim versions, six nanometer chips, um, basically anything where the cost per transistor isn't really a factor. Um, Sony have already produced an 1100 series PlayStation 5, uh, which, you know, tweaks various aspects of the design. A 1200 is on the way. So, you know, there are going to be changes to the hardware design in terms of actual new products that could be marketed. You know, a smaller, more efficient box is viable. Pro consoles, though, mm, you know, I don't think it's viable, but let's take a look at how things play out in terms of the AMD roadmaps. I was reading today, actually, some remarkable um, stats about Zen 4. Um, Robert Halleck from AMD was talking about 40% improvement in performance from the 16-core chip. 40%. So, you know, there is, there is sort of efficiencies and improvements in architectures going on. RDNA 3 is going to be the big one as to whether we're going to get a pro console out of it and as to whether the market actually wants or needs it. Another question entirely. Um, but let's move on. So our next news story here, Sony put out a huge investor relations presentation this week, which is a goldmine of uh, fantastic information about the state of play, as it were, <laughs> for PlayStation. Um, I guess one of the most heartening things, particularly for a certain Alex Batalia, is the news that um, Sony is looking to double down on PC in terms of uh, continuing what it describes as exponential growth. And uh, it cites some sales figures for its existing PC titles. Uh, Horizon Zero Dawn sold 2.4 million copies, uh, which is astonishing, bearing in mind how bad it was at launch. Days Gone, 852,000. God of War, almost a million, 971,000. Uh, Alex, you must be excited about this. Yeah, this is good news. Um, you know, increasing their trajectory, uh, that they kind of set up when they changed the name of the PlayStation Mobile Game Studios to something else. I forget what, the, what they're calling it exactly now. But um, essentially, they want to get a piece of that pie. And they have all these IPs and all these games that they released for the PlayStation 4 and obviously soon to be PlayStation 5 uh, games that they just want to make more money off of. And it makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, they're learning very quickly, just like Microsoft learned midway through the last generation, that PC is not a competitor with Xbox. It's something that lives alongside it. They have very different audiences, usually. Um, you know, and also they have different game preferences as well, too. So that's why I'm actually really heartened uh, to see some of these sales numbers. Uh, Horizon, you know, we had problems with the port at the beginning. I think it's now in a really good place. Uh, but over, you know, like that kind of like almost two years period that it's been out, uh, that's quite a lot of copies sold. Um, Days Gone also really well. And the fact that God of War has almost sold a 1 million copies and it's been out for just a few months is really excellent. Uh, I guess the one thing I'm curious about what what is coming next, uh, because they want to double, I think, the amount of revenue they're making next year. Uh, so to do that, you can't just rely on old titles. You have to bring out some new stuff. And I'm really curious about what exact order they want to follow there, uh, whether it's going to be PS4 titles or whether it's going to be stuff that we already saw at like launch day on PlayStation 5. Um, one thing we do know, uh, due to some leaks that happened via Steam. Steam is great for these things with the Steam DB, is that Returnal is indeed coming to PC, much like Jensen's prophecy is uh, stated it would be. And uh, there's already some like really cool um, 
uh, I don't know, tags for the game that make it really obvious that this game is coming to Steam. So I'm excited for that. I like Returnal quite a lot. Just to clarify for those who don't listen to DF Direct Weekly every week, uh, Jensen's Prophecy is essentially a massive GeForce Now leak that occurred a while back where basically uh, the entire PC slate for many years to come <laughs> seemed to be leaked. That's so good. <laughs> um, and was Returnal was on the uh, on Jensen's yeah. Prophecy, right? Yeah, there's, okay. there's someone on Reddit keeping a really nice score of these things. The whole deal was that with that Jensen's Prophecy, the GeForce Now leak, that it had a lot of uh, dates associated with it that you can just kind of ignore because, you know, like the dates are just dummy dates usually. There's guesswork. Um, but the, 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 the code products and the names and stuff like that, that's all stuff that had to be in development um, or at least was in development at some point before the game was canceled, like Scalebound, for example, or Titanfall 3. Um, so that's what that's all about. Uh, it points to a lot of other titles other than Returnal, uh, GT7, Sackboy, something or another. I always forget the name of that game. Um, but those are titles that I've also heard things about, about them coming. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm just really curious about when, because, you know, They've got um, coming out soon is the uh, legacy of what is the the Nathan Drake collection thing called the the, the Uncharted Four collection called exactly it's legacy like legacy of thieves I think legacy of thieves yeah that that should be coming out very very soon we don't have many we don't have any good info about what it's going to be like technically I'm very curious if they're going to do the route like other games have had with like DLSS integration integration and things like that um, that'd be interesting to see but. The other titles in the future, I don't know. Sony hasn't said anything about it. Maybe we'll have to wait a little bit uh, more towards their, like the, what would have been E3 time. So you must be excited about Returnal coming to PC because it is your favorite PlayStation 5 game. So what do you want from a Returnal port on on PC? Um, well, it's UE4. So UE4 opens mm. the door to a lot of... So, so no stutter. No, is, is no stutter. Oh God, I, I actually do imagine they'll probably have some issues there. I just, yeah. UE4 is just such a... I don't have very positive things to say about UE4 at the moment, but um, I think, but the positive things about UE4 is I think the the plug-in nature of the engine uh, and the later versions of it ever since 4.22 make things like turning on ray tracing easy to do. They make like, uh, you know, adding in FSR and DLSS very easy because it's literally you just download a package and that's about it. Um, it's just a matter of uh, getting that UI right, getting the experience right for mouse and keyboard. I think is really important. Which they already have done, by the way. If oh you yeah. Remember, the oh, PS5 yeah, version right. does have good mouse and keyboard support. That that's that's good. Uh, so all those things that, that I would like to see, um, but in general, just a smooth frame rate is the only thing I actually want out of this in the end. And I'm, as always, due to UE4, I'm actually pretty worried about that. Uh, so, I don't know, John, is there anything you would want out of it particularly? I mean, pretty much as you say. I would like to be able to play it at 120 frames per second, which would be great. A DLSS would be great, as the image quality could have been better in the original PS5 version. Uh, I would love to not have stutters, but I think it's going to have them, just knowing how UE4 is. Uh, yeah, I mean, ultra-wide support. Uh, I think that'll be an, a nice feature. And this is a fantastic game for the PC, I think, because of the the way that it works, how you essentially relive those days and try to make your way back up to the levels. It's a great game where you just pick up, play until you die, essentially, on one of your runs. And then, you know, it's like, all right, I'll come back next time. It's just, it's awesome. 
The success of roguelikes and tower climb and boss rush games on PC is one thing that I always think it's like this game seems very PC like in that aspect. It does. It does actually feel very PC like in a good way. It's uh, I'm not even really super into games with like random generation elements like this, but man, they did it so well. It's it's really good. I mean, I'm looking at uh, I'm just looking at the, the presentation here from Sony. They are looking to PC for uh, exponential growth, uh, but also there are other elements to the strategy which are kind of uh, far less exciting. Uh, mobile, for example, seems to be taking a good chunk of the uh, of, of, of the of the bar chart there. And um, secondly, and uh, <laughs> you're going to love this, John Cloud <laughs> uh, VR. Which, uh, which I think we're all excited about, PSVR 2 announcement in also in that document that there's going to be over 20 launch titles. And I guess we only really know one of them, which is uh, the Horizon game. And um, yes, unfortunately, they are talking about the metaverse. I mean, yeah, I mean, they've tried it. PlayStation Home. What does that even? Work. Yeah, what does that even mean for PlayStation and Sony? What is? What does well, that mean? Well, you know, I've been uh, pretty negative about the uh, about the the metaverse, but you know, there are things happening on Fortnite which are making that game evolve beyond a game, um, and but that is pretty much the only example, and I think it's simply only there as you know because people like playing Fortnite as opposed to it being compelling within its own right. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, but, gentlemen, um, lest we forget, like I said home playstation home they yeah. had the metaverse uh more than a decade ago it dropped it like a yeah line. and you, it you guys don't sound that exciting <laughs> well it's the thing is it um playstation home actually looks a lot better than some of the metaverse yeah, it actually, does. That's, that's, that's true <laughs> i mean put a bored ape into uh, playstation home and you're, you're sorted really aren't you <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah i mean that you know is kind of I think that's just sort of filling space there on their presentation. Um, but, you know, PC, obviously, we want to see more about. It's quite interesting that before PlayStation 5 came out, it was all about how they're wedded to the console generation. And um, But looking at this presentation, it looks as though PlayStation 4 is still massive business uh, for Sony, uh, to the point where 69% of PlayStation uh, Now, uh, not PlayStation Now, PSN subscribers, are still on PlayStation 4. And it uh, seems to be, you know, looking at this document, although there's nothing uh, specifically uh, addressing it, they are still talking about a AAA slate for PlayStation 4 in a world where we, we kind of hoped that they would have left that behind. Um, yeah, it looks like PlayStation 4 revenue from the PlayStation uh, store is 65% of the overall uh, pie chart there. So only 35% of revenue is coming from PlayStation 5. So I suspect maybe it is the case that the whole um, uh, supply issues with PlayStation 5 are essentially forcing Sony to maintain PlayStation 4. Uh, Some fascinating figures in here. For example, 80% of revenue from PlayStation 4 is digital versus disc, which uh, is probably highly depressing for John there. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> single word answer yes um but it also looks as though they're um uh longer term medium term looking to transition playstation 4 to free to play games like well fortnite is obviously a good part of it in the here and now they're also talking about genshin impact on that 
Any any comments on that, John? I mean, we kind of want PlayStation Four to go away at this point. Sorry, don't we? I, just, I just passed out there when you said free to play. <laughs> too, too much, too much for me. Uh, Fortnite, oh. Fortnite. Uh, no, I mean, it's it's difficult to look at this data because, in the sense that, when you have a very popular platform, I feel like it's going to continue to be popular even when the next generation has arrived. Like, I don't know how well they could have tracked this with PlayStation 2, for instance, as which is their best-selling console still. But I'd imagine a lot of people stuck with the PlayStation 2 for many, many, many years. Sony themselves was still putting out first-party releases on the PlayStation 2 upwards into, like, 2009, 2010, possibly beyond, right? Like, the PS3 generation was more than half over, and they were still putting out PS2 games. Yeah, I mean, they do have some stats for that, PS4 versus PS3. The second year of PlayStation 4, um, the average yield uh, from a PlayStation 3 user was $68 per user, per active console, they're saying. 2021, the second year of PlayStation 5, that's gone up to $151 for PlayStation 4. No, that's PS3 true. has no games. The, the tricky thing, though, is that PlayStation 3 was never even close to as popular as PlayStation 2, right? PS4, on the other hand, is nearly as popular as PlayStation 2. So you can really only compare the two really popular platforms, whereas PS3 was always kind of uh, less successful, except in the minds of certain people. As we know, Mr. C. C. Wizzy, he was into that. But uh, I have no doubt that the PlayStation 4 will continue to be a success for sure. Um, And I'm very curious to see what they mean by continuing support for this it could really mean so many different things i mean even the ps3 which was less successful still received a decent amount of support well after the ps4 was out right i guess we just need to to keep tabs on that Uh, but let's move on to the next topic what if (laughs) and again this is a topic that's going to wind wind up john (laughs) what if the next xbox is actually a cloud streaming stick uh, there was a report from Windows Central of a project code named Keystone, which is essentially, uh, I'm, uh, we are exaggerating by saying it's the next Xbox. It is essentially a plug-in stick for your TV that enables cloud functionality. And uh, apparently it's in development. Um, Microsoft actually came up with a comment to Windows Central saying that uh, Keystone is dead it's being um learnings from it are being taken into a new iteration of their next cloud streaming device but it does seem like confirmation that a cloud streaming device is coming and um it's part of microsoft's strategy to get their library and get game pass in in particular to more users (sighs) i hesitate to to do this to you john but do you have any thoughts oh i mean i'm not inherently opposed to anything like this i mean I would be disappointed if it was the only option going forward, but I don't think that's going to be the case. And it's like an optional device that's sold for a lower cost. It makes perfect sense. I can see why they would want to do it. But why can't they just put an app on the TVs? Every TV. No, I'm, I'm sure it has to do with just all the weird compatibilities with controller types and, and polling latency. And there's, there's so many things that can vary between TV manufacturers, the OS, the SOCs they're using. Uh, I mean, I know they all have different apps, but I don't know. It's it's hard to know how well that would actually work. And this is this this is a very simple sounding solution. You just get a little device, plug it in, pair a controller with it, and you're good to go. Um, it is kind of weird though when thinking about 
streaming and like increasing availability because I'm still, I feel like internet speeds just still aren't there like around the world. Like even in like relatively, I would say developed countries such as Germany, the internet sucks here, except for in very specific, like in the large cities, it's going to be excellent. But if you go anywhere else outside of it, the speed just drops off a cliff and the reliability goes down. And this is true all around the world, right? Like streaming is not great in those instances. It's not reliable. So I don't know, man, this is the kind of stuff. It feels like these streaming solutions are always designed in, in parts of the U S where they have like the fastest internet on the planet. They're like, Oh yeah, this is great. I just don't want streaming to be the only way to get a game. In fact, I'm always, I was a little bit curious about whatever happens to all those Linux ports that were made for Stadia. Um, it's kind of a shame that they're just stuck there. Um, yeah, um, so like I just like this as a complementary, supplementary uh, thing, not really uh, to the normal way people engage in console gaming. But I am curious about what it would be sold like if um, if you like go to your local media store or your Amazon and it, it comes with a controller or two controllers. Uh, I've not looked at split screen gaming in xCloud ever. Uh, I am actually very curious about what that would be like. Is that even a thing? Well, it's you're getting the Xbox app. If the game has split screen built in, then it will have split screen in cloud, I guess. It's not, uh, it's not, they're doing clever things with Stadia where they can actually combine streams um, with different server instances. They're not doing that as far as I'm aware. Um, we, we've got an interesting question here from supporter Kerr UK, as always, apology for uh, pronunciations or mispronunciations. I know nobody in DF really likes game streaming. Yes. But I still want to know what's your take on whether the big obstacle for making game streaming more attractive uh, being the problem with internet infrastructures or something the streaming software can solve by itself. Um, well, here's the thing, right? I mean, Every sort of, I don't know, five years, let's say, on average, uh, new console hardware comes along. But it's not the case that every five years uh, your internet infrastructure is upgraded, right? That's, you know, I've still got um, uh, infrastructure here that's, let me think about it, it's well over 10 years old at this point. We had a, a sort of basic fiber put in 30 megabit per second download. It's not really evolved beyond that in 10 years and it's not good enough for streaming. I have to go to, whenever we do a streaming test, I have to go to somewhere with a decent connection to actually get it working. Um, I'm told, looking at um, our sort of infrastructure uh, company, that I will get gigabit um, connection by 2025. I think at that point, you can safely assume that you're well on the way to making it viable from an infrastructure perspective. And also, if somebody else is using the internet for Netflix or whatever, your your gaming experience won't be compromised. Definitely is at the moment. Um, I think from my perspective, if we're looking at what they're doing with xCloud in the here and now, um, we did some tests with xCloud on, I think, Destiny 2 and whatnot in a, in a recent video. And it was actually it was actually the RTX 3080 tier cloud service that Tom looked at. The latency was really bad. It seemed to be worse than the the beta that I looked at, where they use an external encoder. I'm I'm just wondering whether um, we need another iteration of hardware server side plus the infrastructure upgrades. 
And I guess, as always, uh, I mean, take a look at GeForce Now 3080 tier because it is pretty much the best out there at the moment. It, it's so much better than xCloud. It defies belief. So I guess from my perspective, there's just big upgrades required across the board. Infrastructure needs to be sorted. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. I mean, I, I still can't use xCloud at home. That's remarkable. And um, GeForce Now is okay, but it's barely, it's, it's just about there, but I'm getting dropouts. And that's the best service, right? So, you know, my connection is in no way the best and it's in no way the worst, but you know, there it is, it's, it's not good enough. Um, in terms of software, well, um, actually, I think it was id Software did a lot of work for Orion, for Bethesda, for their cloud service that never happened. Uh, Microsoft owned that technology now. They had some really interesting stuff there in terms of smoothing latency uh, client side. Uh, so there's, there is a lot of evolution that can happen in the cloud, but I, I still think we're like four years away from it being anything sort of remotely usable for the mainstream. Yeah, the thing about it is like, even with really fast internet, you still have to consider proximity to the data centers as how many different chains it needs to go through before it gets to you. And they've been putting a lot of work into solving the latency issues. And that's actually pretty impressive right now, but there's still issues with frame persistence, right? Like that's the big problem with cloud stuff that I've not, I've never seen an example of cloud streaming that has perfect frame persistence. And I'm wondering how feasible that even is given the variable nature of an internet connection and what they have to deal with. Like, how do you ensure that every frame arrives at your screen exactly within that 16 millisecond window if you're going for 60 fps right and presenting that seems to be quite challenging uh and you know so that's that's one of the things i don't see talked about often in regards to streaming and it's kind of a big deal i think i don't know what you guys think about that but it, yeah i mean uh, it was like when i i've really only ever looked at stadia well i downloaded some titles and i looked at a number of them right when it came out but then i did like red dead redemption and the thing that I remember that about that very specifically is it was, it was really hard to get an understanding of where the dropped frames were coming from. Like, like I was, I was like, just like riding the horse and it would like drop frames and it looked sputtery, but it didn't seem like there was any good reason for it from a technical perspective, like in terms of whatever the hardware was delivering, but it felt like it was the streaming itself maybe. And, you know, we've had it before where games have to sacrifice, um, I would say smoothness of animation for input latency reasons. Uh, we've we've seen that before, and I, I wonder if it is a little bit of that uh, regarding like what what packets are being sent and how they want to like speed up the stream a little bit for a second so that they can get you like the proper latency. To get the smoothest stream, you would need to buffer the end result enough on the client side, right? And then you could ensure that the data is delivered smoothly. But the more you do with buffering, the slower the input response. So the f you want that immediate response, then you're at this risk of inconsistencies. Yeah. So like on PC, like we've talked about, I've talked about before with regards to Steam Deck, but like triple buffering and like the non-real triple buffering, the one that's just kind of like dumbly lines up three uh, frames uh, in total, that leads to really, really consistent uh, frame times usually leads to uh, really consistent performance, but at the cost of input latency. And I've always kind of, you know, at least at 60 FPS, I find it reasonable. And at 120, I, I actually like it quite a bit. Uh, but like, 
we're talking about like the distance between a server and just a web browser usually it's not even like a super dedicated machine you know it's like a web browser on any sort of device um i can understand why that's a problem we've had issues um looking at the playstation classics lineup that's in the top tier of the new playstation plus premium offering we had issues pretty much since day one because there's been the perception based on Sony's prior uh, emulation efforts that they just don't seem to put a lot of effort into um, uh, their older, emulating their older systems on the newer ones. I think, you know, PlayStation Vita was pretty much the last system that really did it well. Since then, not so good. And um, now we have these emulators that are running on PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 in the new PlayStation Plus offering. That offering is now available in Asia. We've been able to go hands-on. A lot of people have gone hands-on. They've noticed that there are a lot of issues. <sighs> and we got a bunch of questions from supporters here. This one, I'm just gonna rattle through them in turn. Uh, this one from AFC Steve. Hi DF, your thoughts on reliving the glorious days of PAL for the PlayStation 1 classics. If you didn't know, PAL games back in the day ran at 50 Hertz. They inherently ran slower than their US and Japanese equivalents. Uh, if you grew up in America or in any NTSC territory, happy days. If you were in Europe, it was a disaster. Um, the next question from Seeks. When it comes to emulating their old PS2 slash PS1 games, does Sony just not care? Or are they incapable of delivering good emulation? No time, no budget. The most recent emulation problems on the new PS Plus service seem like a continuation. It's not a new pro not a new problem. Kips Kipters says talking about PAL PS1 games on PS5 is VRR enough to make it a non-issue on compatible displays. Spoilers, no, it doesn't work at all. Uh, final, yeah, it's just you can't use VRR. Uh, final question, question from Eric Benoit, and we're moving into tinfoil hat territory here. As he says, at the risk of sounding like I wear a tinfoil hat, I sometimes feel that Sony might be purposefully making PS1 games as bad as possible without, without making it obvious so people will think original PS1 games were really not worth playing. This would allow them to save time and money by not ever having to worry about backwards compatibility and hardware development. And they can just sell remastered disappointments at a premium price. I know this theory is out there, and yes, it is. But the PlayStation Classic and this PS Premium 50 Hertz fiasco makes me very cynical. What do you gentlemen think? So, John, uh, fiasco, debacle, shambling mockery of a sham. Uh, is it that bad? Because we did actually gain access, thanks to um, uh, one of our DF supporters, we did gain access to the uh, Asia PS Plus service. We have been hands-on with the emulators. Your content is out now. Is there any extra flavor you can add? I guess I would just say the results are somewhat puzzling in a lot of ways. For each different platform, there's some choices that they made in regards to how they've technically implemented this that I don't fully understand. So first of all, the PAL issue you mentioned, not every game is PAL on this list. It's primarily Sony's first party games, except for one. I think Siphon Filter is actually NTSC. And Worms, one of the, that's the NTSC, or no, that's PAL. But then the other stuff is actually NTSC, but it kind of doesn't matter in the end that much in terms of what you actually get visually because they, 
this is the first time they've opted to target high resolution rendering for PlayStation, which they haven't done before. And I can see why they might think that's a good idea, but it doesn't really work in practice. So, you know, PlayStation's known for its jittery polygons. There's no subpixel precision there, no floating point precision. Uh, and so, like, if you have a game at 320 by 240, you actually see polygons kind of click between two individual pixels on the screen. Uh, that virtual grid still exists when you render in high resolution. So you, <laughs> the popping becomes really, really bad. And this has been somewhat fixed on the PC side with something called PGXP. I think we saw it in uh, first in Duck Station or maybe some other, but essentially that solves a lot of the rendering issues with PlayStation. You get correct perspective textures. Uh, it solves a lot of these uh, precision errors. It looks really amazing. And since they're doing this one by one, I really think Sony should have, if they're going to go for high-res rendering, that should have been an option to sort of push forward and actually try to improve the visuals. They didn't. But they also don't provide an option for classic pixel mode either. Like you can only get the high-res modes. So the games do end up looking pretty ugly. And since you're dealing with PAL games, the PAL game, the problem there is not just that they run slower, which they do, it's that you have this 50 hertz content within a 60 hertz container. So they're slower and very juddery. So there's a lot of frame time inconsistency. So it just doesn't look smooth in action. And then there's the whole thing with their, like all their scaling options and filters are, are absolutely puzzling. Like I was talking to Alex about this, like they have like both one-to-one -one and square pixel modes but it doesn't actually correspond to what you would like normally on a retro game. If you did like square pixels, each pixel mapped to a flat panel, like a 4k screen, you might have like nine pixels of height versus nine pixels of width. Each pixel of the PlayStation game would be square, but that's not the case here. They're actually squished. So they're like nine pixels tall versus like six pixels wide in both of those modes. So you get super squished, skinny looking games. Doesn't make sense. And it gets even weirder because the same thing exists on the PSP emulator, which square pixels on the PSP is a widescreen image because the PSP has a, a widescreen LCD. That's what the, that's what that is. So why would you have square pixels on there or one-to-one? -one? It's one of those options. Squish the image. And then there's this, there's the CRT filter, which is just like they blur the image, they make it darker, like higher contrast, and they basically overlay scan lines, but the scan lines don't properly align with the oh, pixel no. elements. Oh, no. that's crap. You'll oh, see, God. <laughs> so you'll see, like, lines go through the middle of a pixel when it should be at the top and bottom. Oh, and God. even on PSP, if you're playing PSP games and you choose the retro filter, it's scan lines again. It's like, really? On a PSP? Like, they don't even do, like, a, a pixel grid filter or something. Like, this is all stuff, like... As I say in the video, like Mike Chi doing the RetroTink product, right? The RetroTink 5X Pro. It's a little, it's this beautiful little upscaler from him. It's one guy, one guy. And the quality of the scaling and like the filters is so much better than this. Like it's, it's absolutely jaw dropping to me that they weren't able to match any of these boutique products with their implementations. It's so I, I just don't understand how this happens at this point. Like it almost feels like they just looked at terms from different emulators and they just stuck them in there without actually understanding what they do. And so you just end up with this messy mix of weird looking games that don't run right or smoothly that have, you know, the filters are not good. The scaling options aren't good. It's just super weird. 
And then there's also the PS2 emulation, which just seems to be the PS2 classic stuff. I presume it's been fixed somewhat, but they only have the Jack games on there. So I don't know. Like I know Ape Escape 2, for instance, is completely corrupt if you try to play it on a PS5. So I don't know if they've implemented fixes, but even there, as I show in the video, like right from the title screen, like on Jack and Dexter one, they fly the camera around the whole Island and it's 60 frames per second on PS2 on PS5 via emulation. It's immediately dropping to 30 and just hanging there most of the time. Like, and this occurs throughout the game, right? The performance is constantly just unstable and acting weird in ways that it shouldn't. And so, again, that's one of those things where you feel like there's something wrong here. They didn't get it right. And PS2 emulation doesn't even get access to any scaling filters or anything like that. It's just this raw, kind of blurry-looking result. So that's kind of my long rambling thing on it. But it's, you know, right now in its current form, uh, I wish they would, like, consult with somebody, even us, that, like, really knows this stuff. Or because it just feels like, the potential's there. This could be fixed, but right now it's not good enough. And I think it does result in games that look, play, feel worse. I mean, if somebody grew up and they remember Ape Escape, which is an awesome game, and now it's running like 17% slower and it looks all juddery like that. And it's just, it's not fun. I don't understand how it happened um, because, you know, those comments about power content were made on the PlayStation 2 on PlayStation 4 um releases a few years back and yet here we are again with the same problem the playstation classic had the same problem and it was widely condemned as being just not good enough nintendo had this problem at one point with their virtual console service right they have solved it there are ways to fix this on on their consoles if nintendo is beating you at the emulation game uh... <laughs> You know, oh God! How maybe it's time to t stop and and take a look here and try to figure things out because, yeah, they should at least provide regional options. Like I imagine a service where you're selecting these games, they have this, a mix, and obviously implementing this would cost more, no doubt. But they can they could do this. You have an original pixel mode that's like perfectly scaled up to 4K. You can do like a really nice selection of CRT filters maybe even customizable ones. I don't know. But then also have like a PGXP style mode so you can get high-res rendering with perspective correct textures. Uh, just And you can choose which region you want to play when you start the game. You could choose, you know, Europe, America, or Japan. Why not have that option? Like all this stuff seems quite feasible. It's small teams and, and programmers and people are doing this already elsewhere. I feel like Sony should be able to implement this kind of stuff and make it actually genuinely good and compelling because right now, like the, the, the PS three, the PS triple it's PlayStation one emulation is dramatically better out of the gate and PS three even enhances performance, right? That's not the case here. Like if you play need for speed two or need for speed three on PS one, they don't run well, but if you play it on a PS three, the frame rate is dramatically improved. Uh, those games are not on PS5 yet, but I can see based on its behavior in an unlocked game like uh, Jumping Flash, it just adheres to the original performance profile. So there's not even that kind of benefit. I mean, it is pretty shocking, isn't it? Because this is the premium end of the PlayStation Plus offering. And uh, you would expect that if they're marketing classic games, it's going to be classic games enthusiasts that are going to be 
playing these and that, you know, if you are in, you know, I just hope beyond anything else that, that at least the US territory does actually get full NTSC throughout. Uh, because if not, that would be utterly disastrous. If, you know, we are reaching the point at that level that the games would actually be running a lot worse than, than they did on original hardware, which seems to be the case on some of this stuff anyway, which is just, it just beggars belief. I just don't understand how the same mistakes keep happening. I mean, I guess Japan maybe would be the one that has the best chance of not using power releases because they would want to use Japanese language versions, right? You'd think. We should be seeing the best versions of these games, right? And we should be looking at Sony embracing the innovations that have been made in this space by, you know, basically people giving their stuff away for free or producing superior products like the RetroTink. You know, it's, it's kind of mind-bending that, that this should get out like this. And it's it's just, I think the thing that, that sort of compounds it is that we kind of predicted this was going to happen and we hoped that it wouldn't. And then, you know, the product comes along. I mean, we still haven't actually seen the uh, US and the UK versions of PlayStation Plus uh, top tier, but we have seen the Asia one. This is an actual shipping product that Sony have put out and it's not looking great. So I, I guess there is still lingering hope for the US side that it will be NTSC only. But even then, some of the, um, you know, the, the, all the other issues are not addressed, but at least you're getting a full speed game, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Apart from Jack, <laughs> I, mean, I just can't get my head around this. It's just mind bending. It's the lower it really performance is. is crap. Okay, anything, anything more to add on that uh, before we move on to the next topic? Final thoughts, John. Just please fix it. Being the, the main one, I, I, guess. I hope they're listening and like somebody is willing to put some effort into actually solving these issues, uh, because it it leaves a bad impression. It makes these games seem worse than they should be. They look worse. They play worse. This is not how they were meant to be experienced. I mean, the PlayStation Classic was a humiliation for Sony. It was awful. And But what lessons have been learned? Seemingly very few. As I said at the top, Rich, if you said, would I rather play on the PlayStation Classic or the PS5 versions? I'd have to think really hard about this. And I might side with the PlayStation Classic even. Because I really don't like the way these higher res emulations look it's not good isn't it the case that the uh, playstation classic has actually been improved with uh open source software yeah yeah if you if you crack it open and put open source software on there it's actually very capable and it's a great little box the playstation emulators you can get via that method are so dramatically superior it's kind of comical <laughs> right, let's move on to some more supporter questions now on more general topics and um yeah Alex, still oh, FSR. <laughs> if yeah. People still want questions answered. <laughs> this one from Jonas Larson, Tagizade, as usual, probably mispronounced, as usual. Apologies in advance. Uh, if FSR 2.0 is providing comparable quality to DLSS 2, don't you think NVIDIA is wasting precious silicon area that could be used on more shaders on tensor cores? No, no. I, I, answer, I, I talked about this last week, um, where I think... Um, the quality and performance benefits of DLSS are readily apparent, even in Deathloop already, for those RTX GPU owners. And, you know, the whole, like, the whole point of DLSS is that it's ever-evolving, you know, 
constraints of what it has. Like it's not limited by human capacity in the same sense that FSR might be, it's something handcrafted. And it can evolve over time rather rapidly, which is why uh, DLSS has experimental versions you can download on their website. They have really funny names like White Collie 1 and 2, and you can look at them right now if you want, um, uh, that look to improve things. And if you've looked at the DLSS documentation as well, you can see that they're aiming to have it do things in the future that it currently doesn't do, like also upscaled ray tracing content. Because like currently right now, if you plug in uh, like ray trace reflections into a DLSS upscaled image, they will more or less look very similar to what they did uh, pre pre-upscale. Uh, pre-reconstruction. So they're, they're looking at a lot of things in there. And the fact that tensor cores aren't just going to be used for that in the future. It's an ever-evolving paradigm within computer graphics. Uh, so no, I don't think they're wasting anything. And I think the amount of speed up you would get by adding in some just random FB32 there uh, would not be very compelling. And it would also draw more, perform uh, more power uh, than what the, the tensor cores are drawing currently. So I'm going to say no there for a variety of reasons. I guess the question is that we're just on the cusp of understanding what machine learning is going to be doing for gaming. The first implementation is upscaling, and um, it's obviously started out on, on shaky ground, but it is now in a really good place and getting better all the time. So, you know, it's just a case of an emerging technology that's only going to be doing more. Secondly, from a commercial perspective, machine learning has got huge applications across NVIDIA's customer base, you know, enterprise in particular. So, you know, that hardware isn't going anywhere and it's, it's less useful to those markets than more shaders. So, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a no for that one. Um, next question, Bjork Tribe. Any thoughts on DLSS, FSR or XESS being used to upscale streaming services like Netflix seems like a natural fit to get good results without having to pay for remastering. Do you think directors would be offended by a streaming service altering their art, John? Oh man, that's an interesting idea. I'd be curious to see how well their algorithms work with like pre-recorded video filmed content though, because it's kind of a different thing, but I'm sure like with DLSS, they could train it to an XESS, I guess, to work with that. The question is, though, is like AI upscaling for video is interesting. It's really good for restoring very low res content, but I'd be curious to see how good it would actually look when used in this case with already HD stuff, because as it is like right now, the main issue with streaming services, it's not the back end video. It's what served the customer, right? The, the result of having to stream that out, you lose a lot of detail. Like if you go get a 4K Blu-ray and compare it to what Netflix can deliver, the difference is a lot more vast than you might think. Like from a, from a distance, they can look comparable. But if you actually start looking closely at the image, there's just so much detail that's lost. And so using upscaling before sending it to the customer, I don't necessarily think would buy that much in terms of actually getting a good result at the end. Uh, and there's, is there even that much like low res, like 480 line content on those services? Cause I mean, AI upscaling is best for like DVD kind of content, right? But it's mostly already HD anyway. So I don't know. I mean, I'd like to see how this works, but I'm not sure it would be that useful in this specific sort of streaming example. Alex, I mean, these are two fundamentally different technologies, right? I mean, all of these things that we're talking about here are using um, information that only a game engine can provide. 
like motion vectors and and um, and whatnot. So it's it, it's it's we'd be looking at the sort of things that Topaz Video Enhance does, which is extremely slow, um, and the results are often questionable. I don't know. Any thoughts on this? Do you think there is any sort of way that machine learning? I mean, we do have. We do have like the, I mean, my TV has got an 8K upscaling mode that apparently uses AI. And it just looks like a slight sharpening filter. Yeah, so I I think there is a place for this. Um, like, I think you might have noticed it as well too while watching something on Netflix that frame cuts are actually usually like not as high quality as like a couple frames later due to the way their codec works, I think. Uh, so it has it has temporal instability in the codec, whatever they have there. And I think there's probably ways to make that better. Uh, what I think is probably more interesting for streaming over the long term is something like AV1, uh, which is, you know, like really great compression scheme that requires hardware support. Um, just even the little demo that Intel gave about that recording in Elden Ring was like light years better than whatever HEVC was doing, uh, which was really cool to see. Um, but uh, I think, you know, maybe there is a way to do this in terms of like, let's say you have like Blu-ray content and you have a, like a larger subpixel grid there and you also could maybe like motion flow map it like, you know, because you can do that stuff as a post effect uh, as part of Premiere packages and things like that. Maybe there's some way to, you know, do some sort of information over time shenanigans there, but like Rich is saying, I think these are two very different techniques and the type of stuff that we see requiring generative AI content like Topaz, et cetera, the content quality is questionable and I don't think it would fly on a, on a service like that. Realistically though, why would they need a real-time solution for this? Like, why would you be, why would you be calculating this in real time every time you're sending it out to anybody? Like you would upscale the source so there's there are interesting things regarding, uh, for example, like webcam streaming that they do, but that's like a very different field of work where they they take the topology of a face and they they realize you have a low internet connection and they reconstruct the topo topology of a face locally on hardware. But that only works because there's like this like live three D understanding of the environment. It's like it doesn't work here. <laughs> and they do that because webcam footage is not a pre-recorded thing you're doing it live right and trying to enhance it like a pre-recorded video why would you waste resources on trying to do something in real time when you could do better quality offline the streaming retro games thing like that we just talked about like the you could definitely get better quality just by doing it live locally yeah i think you're right john any kind of application would be offline i mean there's these uh, fan attempts to do hd versions of deep space nine i've looked at those for years gosh so yeah. yeah, I mean, and and it's not going well from what I can see. You see these ama occasionally amazing demos, but you know, fundamentally, it's. I think the main issue with machine learning, uh, like Topaz and whatnot, is there is no temporal awareness of what happens in uh, how they process prior frames. Therefore, there's discontinuity frame to frame sometimes, resulting in shimmering and whatnot. So uh, it's still really early days, and it would be an offline process, like a restoration remastering process, as opposed to something done in, in real time. Um, I guess, you know, in terms of sort of making, uh, possibly mitigating compression artifacts, possibly. Um, but I think, you know, 
technologies like AV1 are probably a better route forward there. Um, in terms of taking a 4K stream and making it look okay on, better on an 8K stream, possibly. That's what my uh, TV does. Um, but, you know... Like smart dither, of... smart dither support, something like that? Like, good, you know, like dark dark scenes on Netflix and streaming services are terrible. Yeah. Uh, you know, some, like, but... some sort of smart dither would be nice. Yeah. You would expect that to be built into the decompressor, though. Or the, You'd or hope. The compressor. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, interesting question, nonetheless. Uh, but let's move on to the next one. And it's from Matt. Good question for you here, John. I think I've recently been going back and picking up some last-gen physical games, and it got me wondering about patch versions of games. Do publishers update the versions of their games on physical discs for later print runs? Because if so, it seems like getting as late as possible of a print is the best best for, best bet for buying these games. I don't like greatest hits versions of boxes, but I'd gladly put up with that if it meant the game was patched on the disc. Uh, so as far as I know, this does seem to vary, but a lot of companies do indeed update the builds on their discs or cartridges. And yeah, later versions often are the patched versions. And this is something that goes back decades, like even in the cartridge days, there's different versions of games on those cartridges that are updated often. Um, so I guess the question is, is we need some kind of way to check this I, I don't know if there's any way to know for sure whether this is done on a game like how you can determine whether it's actually been updated like this would require like the community to essentially build out a database of stuff so you understand what what has what on it um but i i still maintain that by and large most single player games are usually perfectly fine and polished right off the disc without any patches at all it's massively overstated the importance of patches for making games playable because we have high profile examples like cyberpunk, right? Where it's really bad off the disc. And that does happen sometimes. And it is sometimes with very high profile games, but by and large, it's not something I worry about. And I especially have realized this going back to the, I mean, it's two generations ago, but going back to the PS triple for that 1080p video, I mean, I've been firing up a lot of games from disc with no patches. And they're usually just totally fine. <laughs> so, and I've compared some of them with what it, what you get once it's patched and the patches usually don't have much of an impact, less than you'd expect. So I don't know, but he, you're right though, Matt, if you're looking for the most up-to-date version, you'll definitely have to keep an eye on what's at, what's being printed because they do sometimes update them. Uh, what about these game of the year editions? What's, what's the general score there? They, they usually bring together DLC and whatnot. Yeah, there's definitely many situations like that where a game will be re-released with extra content. The tricky part is, is sometimes all the content is there on the disc. Sometimes they do this awful thing of just slapping a DLC code in the box or something, which is not great. Uh, Square did that, I think, with Final Fantasy 15 or something. They're updated and Final... They've done that before, but often you can get complete versions of games on disc with DLC, and that's pretty awesome. Uh, let's move on to the next question. This one from Roderick Hossack. This may be an Alex question, but now that you've had some quality time with the Steam Deck, can you see yourselves potentially using SteamOS on your non-work PCs once it's seen a proper release of version 3? Linux has come very far in the last few years, even outside gaming, and I'm not sure I'll move to Windows 11 once it's time to upgrade. First of all, I do like the concept of you spending quality time with Steam Deck, Alex. 
just invi- I'm just picturing the pair of you out on a date, <laughs> holding hands. You know, so yeah, some Netflix and wine. chill. Yeah. you and the deck. Uh, okay, so I have spent some time with the deck. I haven't booted in a while because I'm. Was it quality time it. though? Yeah, it was quality. I definitely had quality some. Time. I definitely had a good some good times with it so far. Um, <laughs> but you know, this question hinges on two things. One, I don't see the exact purpose of me using Linux or SteamOS for. Uh, just when I want to boot up a game on a normal PC, because why not just have the native experience, uh, like without the emulation layer, if I don't need to? Like this, in the Steam Deck case, it's like slightly a prerequisite to have that nice OS experience there. Um, and that's why it's there. And also so you don't actually have to purchase a separate version of Windows for the Steam OS, for the Steam Deck. So I feel like I understand in that context, but I don't understand the the Steam desktop, uh, Steam machine experience, I don't get the purpose of it. It doesn't, it's not what I use PCs for. Like I always want that native experience as much as possible. So I say no there, but the one, there is the one little, you know, like little, you know, thing in the armor there. The exception there is, uh, thank you for Rich for completing my sentences because I'm so bad at this. Um, The exception there is that I actually have had really bad experiences with Windows 11. Um, just earlier this week, I tried uh, Windows 11 right before Hitman 3, uh, and I immediately switched back because, holy crap, it was just crashing on all 3D content. Driver reinstalls, making sure I have the proper chipset driver, all this crap. No, it's just so not stable. It's just not stable on my end. I have no idea why. Um, That's bad news. So that was really really bad first Windows 11 experience. My laptop Windows 11 experience has been quite a bit better, even though I find some of the <laughs> some of the placement of objects not so great. The double clicking of the desktop thing to get to NVIDIA control panel or, or Radeon controls, like, not sure who thought that one up. Well, um, I, th- I think they were just trying to clean up that initial right click menu, but the problem is there's no way well, to determine what goes on that. And that's what, like, if you want to put like your main used stuff on the right click menu, that's great. That'd but, be like, cool. But like, was it really so big? Did it really need such a big cleaning? Like for me, it had like one or two things extra. Oh, like, dude, it, it can get like big wind real zip f- or something. It can get pretty big pretty fast. <laughs> Maybe I don't install as much bloatware as I used to or something. I don't know what it is, but uh, I don't have any problems with that. So for me, I'm like halfway there with Windows 11. The, some of the stuff I really liked about it, like the, the windowing behavior, like how it doesn't like flash. Uh, usually it actually like expands rather gradually. It looks really wonderful. I like the rounded edges, uh, but multi monitor support is better. That is stuff that, you know, I don't, I don't have any use for that right now so much, but I know that you use it a lot, John. Uh, so at the moment, uh, but even then, even if Windows 11, it's going to be iterated upon, I would never want to probably switch to Linux <laughs> unless they really mess something up like really big. I got to say, like, it's uh, Linux is cool, but I, I have to joke a little bit here because I, I feel like I see some variant of Linux has come very far in these last few years, four years, right? Like, it's always the case that Linux has come very far in the last few years. And people have been saying that for like 20 years, it feels like. I tried to, there was a period of time in 2013 where I got interested in it and... It, it didn't have any fruits. It did not have any fruits uh, for me from trying it out and trying to do the Windows XP or like the Windows experience uh, on Linux. It's just not as, it's not as robust. Well, you know, apart from the concept of you spending quality time with the Steam Deck, Alex, 
Yeah. Uh, just the sheer concept of that is still making me chuckle. Yes. Um, I think the thing is at the moment, SteamOS doesn't support ray tracing. Yeah, oh, so what's uh, the point for which, me? Which, which basically oh, means that uh, Roderick here is asking you to give up RT. For Linux. And that's just not going to happen, is it? No, it's not today, not tomorrow. <laughs> not okay, July 5th. Let's move, on to the, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's move on to the next question. Uh, this one from Leftist Hominid. Do you think we could see cross-gen games that ditch the base last-gen consoles but work on the enhanced consoles, e.g. a game works on PS4 Pro and PS5, but not base PS4. Um, mm, uh, John, what do you think of this? I don't think it. You can't. You can't do it. I mean, basically, first of all, the platform holders' rules prevent you from doing an enhanced console-only game. They won't allow it. I'm 100% positive they won't allow it, and there's no real easy way, I guess, to prevent that. Anyway, you'd have to go out of your way to lock out the other systems and. I just think it would create consumer confusion and, and Sony and Microsoft have no reason to actually allow that. I mean, we've seen what happens with Cyberpunk 2077 where, you know, there is actually a case for this because it's just it's just super bad on Xbox One and PS4, but it kind of, you know, especially on PS4 Pro for some reason, it kind of bizarrely holds together. Um, but it's the exception and not the rule and it's not going to be a, a great idea i suspect but you know it does hint at a possible scenario to come where uh the concept of the the console generation is gone forever and we're in a kind of con continuous cross-gen uh scenario kind of like the mobile phone situation where certain games work on certain tiers of hardware um, but certainly that's not the case in the here and now and as i said the platform holders have specific limitations there uh, which prevents you from only releasing on Xbox One X or PS4 Pro. Final question from Matt Buresh. With, <laughs> with NAC3's in inevitable announcement or release, sorry, will NAC3's inevitable announcement or release coincide with a PS5 firmware update to enable its promised 8K output? Surely Sony will not limit his own game to a mere 4K, John. How could it not? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh... I mean... Uh... The, sec oh my God. the secret is that NAC 2 is actually pretty good. Just going to say. <laughs> well, this is the thing, right? Because, you know, obviously we poke a lot of fun at uh, NAC 1, uh, but it's actually quite an amusing experience now on PlayStation 5. It's it really is. good. NAC 1's fun, NAC but two, NAC 2 is actually genuinely NAC great. NAC 2 is a good game. It is. Yeah, I agree. check it out. If only there was an inevitable announcement or release for NAC 3. And, uh, but I would settle for nothing less than 16k rendering downscaled to 8k but what, with an unlocked with, frame rate that varies between 23 <laughs> and 36 like the the 8k thing is always still really funny though because there is the one 8k game right it's uh john looked at it right? <laughs> the tourist the, there's the one tourist, 8k but, game um but it's also downsampled right so um i after having dabbled with 8k on pc and i know rich has because rich has a sweet television um i just don't see any use for it still to this day even if nac 3 could have an 8k mode i would question why they would want it it's, i mean they could do like the ps triple and like enable like a 1080p 4x msaa mode on a game and then have it run at like 12 fps I mean, <laughs> yeah it'd be so good a, a new version of that <laughs> I mean, I guess future scaling, but even then, in 10 years, I don't really want to be using 8K either. I'd rather be high frame rate territory at that point. So, 
Well, you know, the thing about 8K, I think, is that, you know, when 40, 80, 40, 90 come along, they're actually going to be pretty good 4K GPUs, uh, native 4K rendering GPUs, potentially. And uh, DLSS performance should actually look really good on an 8K screen. Um, but, you know, my hands-on experience with an actual 8K game running on an 8K screen is that once you're at living room distances, it just looks like 4K with a really good anti-aliasing. Uh, you're not getting any kind of massive resolution increase advantage over 4K. It just, you know, looks a bit crisper. And the amount of computational effort that's going in for this kind of marginal result is uh, staggering when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, it's so bad. Um, and, you know, I think the direction of travel just generally is that uh, native resolution rendering when you're, when you're going at 4K upwards is not a great idea, just generally. But, you know, NAC3, I'm there, day Heck one. Yeah. Day one on Game Pass. <laughs> day, day one on PlayStation that, Plus that, Premium. That whatever. Of the ultimate uh, betrayal. Next three comes out, but it's only what, on Game Pass. What if they made another tier on PlayStation Plus that was just the NAC tier? <laughs> Gives you yearly NAC. Yeah, all NAC all, all the NAC. time. Yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, but look, that's it. That's the end of the show. Please do like, subscribe, share if you enjoyed the content. Ring the bell for those notional. Uh, instant notifications they may or may not happen that is our disclaimer um do you have support program get involved our community is awesome questions appear on the show uh, you can help shape the direction of our content get updates about what we're doing early access amazing retro stuff it's all going on there uh, but that's all from us for now see you next week and thanks for watching <laughs>